All right, we're back to Mark chapter 4. Same text as last week, different part of it. Felt it would be um, really hard to put the whole parable into one sermon, unless it was a really long sermon, and not all of you appreciate those things. So, um, <clears throat> two sermons is what you get. Um, the previous sermon is online, if uh, you want to go back and hear that, if you haven't already, uh, but we're doing the second half of this. So, verses 1 through 10, and then the interpretation in 14 to 20. <clears throat> and he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell unto good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word... Immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that um, the seed that is sown this morning would fall on good soil, that it would bear much fruit within the lives of uh, the individuals here, as well as the life of the congregation, uh, that there would be much bearing of fruit. Um, that we would see a great harvest in the days to come. Only you can do that. And so we ask that you would. Open our ears that we may hear. Open our eyes that we may see. And shine your light into our hearts. That we might behold 
but glory in the face of Jesus. Amen. As uh, many of you are aware, Jonathan Edwards is probably one of the most famous American pastors over the course of our history. Uh, And Jonathan Edwards experienced both the highs and the lows of ministry. Uh, Initially, there was a great revival that took place under his Sorry, his preaching in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, It was so renowned that he had to, and came under criticism, uh, that he wrote a number of books defending what had happened, uh, including the narrative of surprising conversions. It was one of them in particular. And, uh, but it wasn't just limited to Northampton. Later, when he began to preach in other places, he became one of the key figures in what is called the Great Awakening. I mentioned one of those figures last week, George Whitfield, and they're two of the most prominent, but not the only, uh, pastors and preachers who were uh, at work during the Great Awakening. It must have been hard to have been Jonathan Edwards. To have seen such a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to, to... see your preaching used in such a magnificent, powerful way in the conversion and revival of so many, and then to see nothing happen. For it to be as if you were speaking to rocks with almost no response, to get to the point where even your own congregation turns against you and removes you. The highs and the lows of ministry. And those were incredibly high highs and incredibly low lows. Jesus here is experiencing one of those incredibly high highs. We saw it last week. Uh, He's preaching the gospel, and there's so many people in the crowd uh, that he needs to get off of the land, sit in a boat, and begin to teach them. He's fulfilling, as we mentioned, his ministry... Okay, his understanding of why he had come, as we saw in chapter 1 of this gospel, that he came to proclaim the good news, to be a herald of the kingdom. We see, in a sense, that this is also a fulfillment of that teaching ministry we see in Deuteronomy 6. That's part of why we read it. He's now instructing his people about God and his salvation, not just in the time of uh, the, the exodus, but now the coming salvation that is approaching. The highs of ministry. But he's also beginning to prepare people for the coming low of ministry when it will be basically down to the nub of 12 people and Jesus himself will not simply be removed from his position like Jonathan Edwards, but will be crucified and buried. Jesus is addressing this reality of the crowds in the form of a parable. He's explaining it to his disciples and those who are with them later on. And uh, we see that this forms the pattern not simply for Jesus' ministry, but it also forms the pattern for ministry, period. We discover throughout the course of this parable that the sower is the same. It's not like there's different sowers and some of them are good and some of them are bad. The seed is the same. It's not as though the fault lies with the seed, that some of it is good seed and some of it is bad seed. What we find is the issue is the soil. 
That is the fundamental difference uh, that Jesus reveals within this parable, and that there are three unfruitful places, and there's one fruitful place. Last week we saw the deception of Satan, as well as the afflictions of the world as two of those unfruitful places or conditions. We recognize them as heart problems. And now let's continue to address the third unfruitful one as well as the one fruitful one. So what is the third obstacle to growth in the parable of the sower? In other words, uh, put it another way, what is the third heart problem that Jesus brings up within the course of this teaching? Jesus mentions us, uh, tells us, other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it, or choked the seed. Jesus is speaking about briars, thorn bushes, uh, not simply weeds, but in many ways sort of uh, dangerous weeds. You'd, it seems strange that some of the seed would end up near the thorn bushes, but lo and behold, it has uh, anyway. And so the seed fights for resources. I was doing a little bit of uh, science with one of my kids, and we are talking about the cycle of life and uh, that there are, oh, now I'm forgetting. Uh, boy, predators, decomposers, and I can't remember the first one. The plants, producers. The plants are producers, okay? And so what plants do is they, they take the CO2 from the air, okay? We need CO2 in the air or the plants can't live, Okay. They take the CO2 from the air, uh, they, they draw up the, the water from the soil as, long as, some, as well as some nutrients from the soil, and uh, when the sunlight hits them, that whole photosynthesis thing takes place, and uh, lo and behold, you have oxygen that comes out, and the carbon helps the plant grow in the form of sugars. Okay. There's a little science for you. Um, I'm not a scientist, nor do I claim to be one. Okay. Well... What happens here is there's something bigger and badder that's fighting for those nutrients in the soil and that water in the soil, and that is the thorn bushes, and their, their roots go a little bit deeper and get all of the water. And so in the parable, they're, being, they're choking out the life that would be found from this seed. This seed can't grow because it can't get the nutrients it needs. Oh, there's plenty of nutrients, but it's being sucked up by the thorn bushes. What are these thorn bushes, these briars? That, uh, what do they represent? And Jesus explains this as the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires. Jesus has already talked about the world in a sense, um, and John reflects this in his, God, his uh, second, first letter, chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so there's a sense in which these desires are about the world. Uh, they're produced from the world, but they're also connecting with our fallen human nature, otherwise known as the flesh. 
So we, we find sort of a threefold affections of the flesh that begins with this anxiety, which the source is the world. And so when it talks about the anxiety of the world, it's most likely talking about anxiety which, whose source is in the world. Living in this world will produce anxiety. There are all kinds of anxieties that are in the news right now, and we're not necessarily talking about those. But we are talking about specific anxieties. We're not talking about the the, uh, uh, psychological diagnosis of general anxiety. We're not talking about the, the reality of chemicals in the brain. We're talking about someone who is choosing to be worried about certain things. I'm making, I'll make a distinction there for you. Okay. Some is a medical condition. The first one, that general anxiety, that free-floating anxiety that really has, uh, it's not focused on any particular thing, uh, but there, are, there is anxiety that is sinful uh, that we're, we're choosing not to trust. Okay? Those are two different things. And I'm speaking about the second thing here today, as I've spoken about it before. Um, the world will produce anxieties for us. Living in this world produces anxieties uh, for us. And for instance, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he says that it's good for someone to remain unmarried because you have less things to worry about. I got married when I was in my mid-30s, and uh, life was easier before I got married. If I was out of work, all I had to worry about was me. And then I got married. Then I had kids. And so that period when I was uh, out of work, now I'm not worrying simply about me, but I'm worrying about my wife and I'm worrying about my two kids. And now, you know, I've got four kids. And there's more clothes to buy. There's more food to buy, especially as the boys get to be teenagers. This is getting kind of scary, you know. Uh, but there's other things that uh, it seems like we have to buy. And, uh, and I am uh, dreading the day when they start to drive because now, uh-huh, yeah, Rick, that insurance rate goes through the stinking roof. These are things that a father thinks about. And somewhere in there is... I'm not getting any younger. Retirement is coming. Can I handle this? So there are, there are anxieties, even for the Christian, that emerge because we live in a world uh, that there are, there's stuff that has to get done. Okay? However, what Jesus is getting at here is that, ang- that when we are preoccupied, when we are anxious, about all of these things, it reveals something about our heart. And what it reveals about our heart is that it doesn't believe that God's in control. It's thinking that I'm in control, or perhaps someone else, some government person. But someone who doesn't love me and care for me (laughs) is in control, or someone who's weak and powerless is in control. And I'm not sure if uh, this is going to actually happen, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to do these things that I think I need to do. And so I begin to fret and worry and turn it over in my head repeatedly and produce nothing. That's what happens when we forget that God is in control. 
But we see another one of these uh, affections of the flesh, and that is the deceitfulness of riches or wealth. That riches promise us this great life, uh, but that's the point. They're deceitful in their promises, and they can't really deliver because, you know, one of the things that they promise sort of in health. We think, if only I had more money, I'd be healthier. And you might be to a degree, but last I checked, there were still um, wealthy people in the hospital, wealthy people with terminal cancer, wealthy people with diseases that rob them of life and vitality that they can't fix by throwing money at it. We think that money can provide pleasure, and it does to a degree provide the opportunity, opportunity for pleasure, but there are also plenty of people who are poor who experience great measures of pleasure. We think that riches can supply security, but you know, sometimes you still lose all you have in the stock market or through a robber who breaks into your house. In other words, riches lie, lie, lie. They offer things that they really can't ultimately deliver on. Scripture warns us repeatedly about the deceitfulness of riches. Proverbs is filled with things. For instance, in Proverbs 15, we find a couple of things. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Okay? Money often brings trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. So all the money in the world doesn't fix the problem if your marriage stinks. So, the riches, the deceitfulness of it. But we also see the desires Here, the desires for things, covetousness. The desire for other people's things is covetousness. When I when I have what my neighbor has, when I wish my house was as nice as my neighbor's house, or my car is as nice as my neighbor's car, uh, or I'm not even sure what. Um, But we begin to covet. And that, of course, is a violation of the Tenth Commandment. But that's where we live a lot of times. We always want more. We want what our friends have. We want what our neighbor has. We want what our boss has. Such greed that functions within the human heart reveals one that is not satisfied with Jesus Christ, but rather needs Jesus and X, Y, or Z to be happy. Jesus and a bigger house. Jesus and a better car. Jesus and more steak. Jesus and craft beer. Jesus and expensive cigars. Jesus and the highest speed internet. Jesus and the latest technology that I could possibly get because, you know, my computer is looking a little old today. Jesus and. That's the covetous heart. That's never happy because the and always changes. As soon as you get the newer car, the better car, your heart moves on to something else. 
nothing wrong with getting a newer car for those of you who have just gotten one, okay? But if you're thinking that that's where life is, you're missing it. Tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You know, maybe she cooks better than your wife. Maybe she cleans better than your wife. No one, I don't think, cleans better than my wife. Okay. Um, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That covetous nature. Now, when we think about the people who were around Jesus, we might think that the crowds dealt with covetousness, dealt with greed, dealt with that whole problem that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but Luke lets us know that there was another group of people that you probably didn't suspect struggled with such greed and covetousness. The Pharisees, it says in Luke 16, verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. The Pharisees didn't just love their moralism, they loved their money. And it led to their rejection. And not just rejection, but the ridicule of Jesus. See how greed can make you do funny things. Covetousness ultimately is a discontentment with God's provision. It reveals that we think that He's not good, that He's withholding something from us that we really need. As opposed to giving us all that we truly need. And so the bottom line here is that gospel living, true Christian discipleship, cannot flourish in a heart that's occupied with this world. A heart that, as Jeremiah Burroughs called, is earthly-minded. Obsessed with the world. Obsessed with the earth and with earthly sort of possessions. People always think it's the other guy that's greedy. Greed is sort of like a hidden cancer. Tim Keller, uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, talks about how in his decades of pastoral ministry, um, he's never had anyone come to him and say, I think I love money too much. Can you help me with that? And I've been in pastoral ministry for 20 years, and I've had people come talk to me about problems with pornography and problems with bitterness, uh, with a variety of sin issues, and no one has ever come to me and said, Steve, I'm greedy. What do I do? Apparently none of you are greedy. No, greed is sort of one of those hidden sins. Okay? Let's put it this way. This might help us. There's a lot of NFL players who think they don't get paid enough. From our perspective, they get played pen- uh, they get paid plenty. <laughs> it's like the Peter Piper picking a pack of letter, a pick of whatever. From our perspective, they make a lot of money. At least the stars do. 
I mean, I can't conceive of making $15 million in a year. You know, I'll take three. <laughs> no sense in getting greedy here, right? I mean, but I, I think if someone gave me $3 million, I could probably live the rest of my life just fine. Okay? But what they're doing is they're comparing themselves to the owners who are not millionaires, but billionaires. And they say, I'm, I'm apparently not getting my proper slice of the pie. And so, you know, there was, a, there was a running back who held out for a while trying to get a greater amount of money. He, he makes $6 million a year. That's not enough for him to play football. Right? Well, he lost $2 million in his holdout. But, but he's, it, the problem is, is he's comparing himself to the billionaire owners and thinking he's not greedy. And that's what we do. We don't look at the person who has far less to us and say, thank you, Jesus, for all you've given me, and I should probably be a more generous person. We look at the person around us who has so much more and go, I ain't got nothing. That's how the human heart tends to function. And the gospel can't grow in the affections of the flesh. So in light of these heart problems, should we just kind of give up hope and uh, stop sowing seed as we th- if we think about this in terms of uh, our call to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to be heralds of this new kingdom? No, we don't give up. We recognize that Jesus continues in this parable and that there's more to the story. He says, other seed fell into good soil and produced grain. And he talks about the harvest in terms of 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. See, thankfully, the sower didn't stop sowing. Some of the seed lands in soil that is actually conducive to growth, and grow it does. There's no path for it to not penetrate. Uh, There's no rocks lying down there so the roots can grow. There's no thorn bushes that are competing for the, the nutrients and the water within the soil. There's just dirt, which is a good thing in this case. There's just water, and there's just that CO2, and there comes the growth, and it produces this harvest. And we see the the wide range within the harvest, 30-fold, all the way up to 100-fold. So there's different harvests that are produced. Not every ministry is going to produce the same level harvest. Not every plant is going to produce the same amount of seed uh, to eat and to plant for the future, but it will produce some for this. We, see it, we should see this in terms of good, better, best. And there were times when Edward's preaching or Whitfield's preaching or uh, Tim Keller's preaching and whatever you want to put in there, when uh, their, their fruitfulness, their harvest was good. There's times when it was better and there's times when it's best. But if you look at all of those men, there's times when it wasn't at all. Just to kind of keep perspective. The fruitful soil, Jesus says, are those who hear the word and accept it. And he's referring to what we see in verses 3 and verses 9. In verse 3, remember, he says, listen. That's how he's introducing this parable. Listen and look. 
ears, eyes. Then, verse 9, he talks about, um, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not everyone had ears to hear. They had ears, but they didn't have ears to listen. And so these are people who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And as I was thinking about it this week, I was like, you know, I'm such a foolish guy. I I should have asked uh, Anne to sing, um, let us love and sing and let us love and sing and wonder. Because he gives us eyes and he gives us ears is one of the lines that's in there. Okay. Um, These people hear the word and, and don't just... Oh, yeah, it's nice. I heard that. Like we sometimes hear the radio or the TV while we're driving or doing something around the house. Hopefully you're not watching the TV while you're driving. Um, <clears throat> that's bad. I don't encourage it at all. But they hear it. Uh, just like the other three, okay? The other three soils heard the word. But in order to bear fruit, you must not only hear God's word, but you must receive God's word. They accept it. They receive it. Or as we see uh, in John's gospel, that's another way of saying, they believe that what the word says is true. That it's God's word, and it's true, And it has authority. So that you are now beginning to make your choices in light of that word that you heard. As opposed to, that's nice information, thanks for passing it on. We're we're overwhelmed with information in our culture. We've got 24-hour news stations. We've got the Internet. uh, We've got Twitter and all that stuff. We could be overwhelmed. You don't believe everything that you hear, I hope, online. But when you hear the Word of God, you should be believing it. You should be receiving it as opposed to assessing it and evaluating it in a way that you would the news or your neighbor's story, uh, something like that. Because God, when he speaks, speaks with truthfulness and authority. Now, we must make sure we properly understand the word, but that is different than whether or not we believe the word. We should properly understand it, And when we do believe it, because true faith begins to act on what God says. And that's exactly what you find, for instance, in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. By faith, they did this. By faith, Noah built an ark. Why did he build an ark? Because God told him to. Because he, he believed that God was telling the truth when he said he was going to send rain, and a whole lot of it. And the only way to be delivered was to build the ark. He believed God, and so he built an ark. And Abel believed God, and he offered the proper sacrifice. 
Abraham believed God's word and therefore left his homeland and went to this place where he didn't know yet because he believed that God was going to show him a city that he was going to build. Faith hears the word of God, believes the word of God, acts on the word of God. For example... Such a person should hear what the Word says about anxiety, should hear what the Word says about greed, should hear what the Word says about covetousness, and realize the sinfulness of these things. And begin to act on that. For instance, let's take the counterexample. Let's take Cain. Cain was mad at his brother. Because ultimately Cain was mad at God. And God came to Cain. We always, this is what we see. People don't go to God. God goes to people, generally speaking. God comes to him and he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you and you must rule over it. Cain is warned by God that sin is crouched at his door like a lion or some other predator ready to pounce upon him and consume him, and Cain doesn't believe him. And so what ends up happening is that Cain takes a rock and kills his brother. We see passages like 1 Peter chapter 5, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And so we should believe the Word of God that we are going to have anxieties. It shouldn't surprise us that we're anxious about things. The question is, what do we do about these anxieties? Do we cast them on God or do we try to keep them to ourselves? We will only cast them upon God if we believe He cares for us. And the only place we learn that He cares for us is His word. Do we believe he cares? If we do, we'll cast as opposed to clutch these anxieties. We'll read passages like 1 uh, Timothy chapter 6 and we'll, we'll believe that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and so we will guard our hearts from the love of money. Recognizing that some have left the faith because of greed, of all things. The silent killer. So we heed the warnings about Satan. We heed the warnings about the world. We heed the warnings about the flesh. We recognize deception. We recognize affliction. We recognize improper affections. And here's the thing is that for the Christian, these drive them to Jesus, not from Jesus. The soil that fell upon the rock, what happens to the afflictions? It drives them from Jesus. To the one that's in the good soil, it drives them to Jesus. They both have afflictions. It's what they do with them. The Christian, the real Christian, will have these affections of the flesh, but do they drive them to Jesus or from Jesus? The true Christian cries out to Jesus instead of cursing Him for these afflictions or these affections. 
And so the fruitfulness of faith reveals the power of the gospel because, precisely because there's fruit where there shouldn't be. But let's step back a little bit. Why is it that there is good soil? Why is it that some accept the word, in other words, while others do not accept the word? I always go back to this as I think about my own family to kind of put this within a context. Why is it that I believe and my brothers don't believe? Is it because I'm smarter than them? No. Is it because I'm just generally more spiritually minded than them? No. What we see when we're honest with Scripture, as, as we've seen in places like 2 Corinthians 4, that we are blinded by Satan. The unbeliever is blinded by Satan. As we saw last week, that uh, people have uncircumcised hearts of stone, as we consider Deuteronomy and Ezekiel 36. And as a result, we hear the lament often within the prophets. For instance, Jeremiah 5, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have ears but do not see. Who have, uh, sorry, who have eyes but do not see. I did it again. Okay. I have eyes and apparently I don't see. Um, who have ears but hear not. Okay, so Jeremiah is rebuking the people of his time because even though they have eyes and ears, they do not see, they do not hear. We see the same thing in Ezekiel. Chapter 12, verse 2. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not. Who have ears to hear but hear not. Why? For they are a rebellious house. The rebelliousness of our hearts means that we don't want to listen to God and we don't want to see what He shows us. It's described as the uncircumcised heart. It's described as the heart of stone. But that's what it is ultimately, is a rebellious heart, a heart that wants to be autonomous, to do what it wants to do and not live under the authority of someone else, especially God. These three unfruitful soils... are referring to the general call of the gospel. What we preach to everybody, as we talked about last week. The indiscriminate, the free, and the generous call of the gospel. And the response varies, but we see that these people aren't changed at all. The good soil could be referred to as what we call the effectual call, because God makes it effectual. Because God regenerates us so that we believe and hear. God sheds His light into our hearts so we see the truthfulness and believe the word that He speaks. God circumcises our hearts so that we begin to believe that which He says and respond to Him positively. God removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. One of our favorite rom-coms that we haven't shown the children yet, and I was thinking about this the other day. We probably should show them that because it's actually clean. (laughs) 
Return to me. David Duchovny, mini driver, his wife dies in an accident. Kids of mine, cover your ears. Don't want you to know the plot. And across town, there's a woman who has a heart problem and is going to die unless she gets a heart transplant. And so the opening sequences of the movie is this wife dies and her heart is placed into the chest of this young woman who's otherwise going to die. That's what we need. People need heart transplants. And that's what the gospel promises, heart transplants. And so the fruitfulness arises out of the fact that someone has received a heart transplant. We see in Job 36, he opens their eyes to, sorry, their ears. I keep doing this. Maybe it's my eyes are failing. Uh, he opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. And then again in verse 15, that same chapter, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. And so Job is talking about how God uses affliction to open our eyes and our ears so that we listen and see and return from our sin. There it is in Job. And here it is in Mark 4. Because we have a new heart, the message of Jesus begins to make sense. Because we have this new heart, the message of Jesus is attractive to us. And so we believe. Such hearts receive the news that we are rebels, that we are lawbreakers under God's wrath, and says, yeah, that's me. I don't want it to be, but that's who I am. Such a heart will receive the message of Jesus as the only Savior who died on the cross and rose again for our salvation and says, yes, that's true. I believe that. That's what I'm resting and trusting in. Someone to rescue me from my sin as opposed to me trying to earn my way out of my sin. Such a heart turns to Jesus in affliction, believing the message that our God reigns, despite the fact that life seems hard, and that the reign of God in Jesus Christ is a good thing, as opposed to a bad thing. And such hearts seek satisfaction in Jesus, not the deceitfulness of riches, and they cry out for change. As we think about this third uh, soil and the deceitfulness of riches, I want you to remember somebody who came to Jesus in the previous chapter. I want you to remember that guy, Levi, right? Who was Levi? Chief tax collector, not the kid sitting over there. He was rich. Aside from being nobility, he was one of the richest people within his community, which of course came at the price of having to basically be a traitor to his nation to collect taxes for Rome, but he got a big slice of that pie. 
he, the only reason you would want to do that if you were a Jew is if you loved money more than you loved God and more than you loved your people, and that's who he was. He was a greedy dude. And then Jesus comes to him and says, you, Levi, come, follow me. And he leaves his position that provides him with wealth because he thinks following Jesus is more important than earning money. Jesus gives him a new heart so that he turns away from his greed and begins to follow Jesus and keeps following Jesus. Because that Levi we know as Matthew, who's one of the twelve apostles that Jesus in chapter 3 has just chosen to be with him so that he will in the future send them out. Levi, who changed and continued to change. That's what the gospel produces. And it's right there, and sometimes we just overlook it. God can expose your problem with greed, but God also fixes your problem with greed. Or any of the other affections of the flesh. He can expose it, and He can deal with it. But you can't. That's why it's good news. And so gospel changed lives seek to change. So if we were kind of to wrap all this up, the big idea for this larger text would be that, that hearts Jesus changes produce abundant fruit. In other words, you're not going to produce abundant fruit unless Jesus changes your heart. Jonathan Edwards, back to him, saw times when his preaching resulted in the great awakening and renewal within his congregation, revival within New England and beyond. God was greatly at work through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. But there were other times when it was like, as I said, he was preaching to rocks. The people didn't respond in faith, but they ended up running him out of town. Jesus will see these great crowds he's teaching diminish. And he wants his disciples to understand why, because it's going to happen to them too. The problem is not the preacher. The problem is not the message preached. The problem is threefold, in one sense. Three manifestations of the same heart problem. Satan steals the good news from many. Others experience afflictions in the world and run away from Jesus, thinking that Jesus is the problem not the world. Others experience the affections of the flesh and seek after those deceitful earthly riches. But Jesus changes some hearts so that they hear and receive the word and they bear much fruit. And so Jesus fixes our heart problems by giving us new hearts. Cry out to Jesus that he'd make his word more fruitful in your lives and in our lives. In other words, you as a person, an individual, but also us as a community, that we'd be more fruitful. 
than we already are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus' honesty, for his candor, that he doesn't promise us rainbows and unicorns, but that he's honest about the hardships that we'll face, the obstacles that we will endure, that uh, our biggest problem is ourselves, but that he is a Savior who has come to rescue us, Uh, that he is a Savior who comes to transform us. And we ask that he would be be transforming us in this congregation. That as much as we deal with um, deception, affliction, and wrongful affections, that Jesus would be redirecting us through his good news so that we become increasingly fruitful. Increasingly fruitful in seeing uh, our kids come to Jesus. Increasingly fruitful in um, seeing our neighbors and family members come to Jesus and co-workers and others. Exceedingly fruitful in bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.